Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Father, I was just, as I was talking to you out back, um, apart from you, I can do nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. Um, we pray that your spirit would come here in a way that is uh, profound, that's life-changing, that speaks to our hearts, Lord. We're here to meet with you. We're here to hear a word from our Father, and so we pray, Lord, that you would come and do that this morning. Um, as I've said many times before, we don't need to hear the opinions of a man or the thoughts of a man, Lord. We need to hear from you, and so we pray that you would do that supernatural work that you do every week here. We pray you do it again, and we pray, Lord, that you would stir up in us joy in your Son so that we could go out there and we could serve the people and love the people that you have in our lives, whether it's family members, it's husbands, wives, kids, whether it's extended family, whether it's in our workplaces or our neighbors, Lord, we need to be fueled with joy in Christ to do that. And we pray that you do that this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, let me give you a little bit of historical context of where we're at here in Acts, this passage that, um, that Melissa read. I want to just give you a little bit of historical context. The year that this happened is 33 AD. So we know what year it was. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. Uh, He was raised three days later on Sunday morning, and then he remained on earth for 40 days. And so he remained on earth as a risen, whole human being for 40 days, um, showing himself to be fine to his disciples and to others. And then he ascended into heaven, took his body with him, ascended into heaven. Ten days later, you have Pentecost. So this is only 50 days after the resurrection that this all occurred. And the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And what's really cool is they did it. You know, they listened. They stayed in Jerusalem. And there they were, 120 of them in the upper room in Jerusalem, waiting for whatever this helper was that was going to come. And then if you take a look at Acts 2, verse 1, The Holy Spirit arrives, and it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they got filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, and at the sound of the multitude... As they came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them heard them speaking his own language. So God does this thing where there's people, Jews from all over the place, have different languages, and as Peter's preaching, they're hearing it in their own language. And Peter preaches the gospel to them, the good news of Jesus. And he preaches to them especially about the resurrection of Jesus. And one thing we don't realize, guys, is that during the sermon, this resurrection that he's talking about, it happened seven weeks earlier in that city. It wasn't ancient history to them. This is seven weeks later that he's saying, Jesus was raised from the dead, as you yourselves know. Like, this is something that they can know for certain. And then he shares the good news that Jesus had died for their sins and was offering them forgiveness. In verse 38, it says, Repent, Peter said, and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children, I love this part, and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so what's the result? Look at verse 41. It says that 3,000 people were saved that day. 3,000 people came to trust in Jesus Christ. 3,000 people became disciples. So they went from 120 
to 3,120. You know, I mean, it was a massive change. And then what happens? What happens next is that they form themselves into little communities called churches. Now, the Bible uses the word church. The Greek word is ekklesia. It never means a building, okay? It always means a people, okay? And whether it means Christians throughout all time and in all places or whether it means a little group like we are right now gathered together, it means a gathering. The word ekklesia or church means assembly or gathering. Um, I was in Mongolia several years ago. Um, I'm a veterinarian, so I was there doing some missions work as a veterinarian. And they were talking about Bible translation there. And when they went to translate the word ecclesia into their language, they had two choices. They had a word that meant gathering, assembly, or a Mongolian word that meant that. Or they could pick the Mongolian word that meant temple building. Unfortunately, they picked temple building. So they made the same mistake that we make when we think of the word church, right? So it's just a, kind of an ongoing problem. The word, if, every time you see the word church, if you set gathering or assembly, it would be so much better for us. Um, it doesn't mean a building. And so they gathered, and they gathered weekly, and then they gathered other times too, which um, is surprising if you sit back and think about it. I mean, you guys might not be surprised about it right now, but let me just put it this way. Um, how many gatherings of people are there where they gather every week in our culture? I'm not talking for work or school or something you have to do, but like a, a club, a group that gathers weekly. Any of you guys are part of a group like that? Okay, one person, two people, anybody else? Okay, so in a room this size, there's two people that gather together weekly in a group. I don't know if you meant church. Um, okay, no, you don't mean church, good. Um, but gatherings in our day and age, weekly, are strange, okay? Whether it's for woodworking or your stamp collector, or it's a gun club, or it's Dungeons and Dragons, um, nothing strange about that. Or you're like a model airplane enthusiast. Like if you get together with a club, you probably do it like once a month. You don't do it every week. Our culture isn't like that. It used to be. People used to gather weekly for all those things. But they don't now. Um, so why did these disciples form these communities right off the bat? And the reason is, is because that's the way God's made us. God has made us that way. God's made us in his image so that we um, come together in community when we're at our healthiest Okay, um, God made us in our image, and God himself is a community of persons. You think of God as a trinity. He is a community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, but three persons who have lived in a relationship of love and communication and friendship and joy from all eternity. There's a lot of times we think about God, and we think about, like, oh, before he made the world, like, he must have been so lonely. He must have been so bored. So he had to make us to kind of fill out what he needed. God has no needs. He's a community of persons. Um, Dallas Willard, who was the head of the philosophy department at USC at one time, he was asked, this is a department head, USC philosophy department, he was asked, what was God doing before creation? And this is how Dallas Willard responded. He was enjoying themselves. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Like, that's really bad grammar, but it's really good theology, right? He was enjoying themselves. God's created us in his image so that we flourish when we're in connection, in a relationship, in a community, not by ourselves. And so this morning, what we'll see is a snapshot of that community life that they had from the beginning there in, in Acts. And there's four practices that they devote themselves to. And it's really, what's beautiful about this is the simplicity. I don't know how much you guys have been involved in church in your life, but we can make it ridiculously complicated. Okay, the beauty of the simplicity of this passage is so nice. And also, it has amazing results. So we're going to look at that this morning. And, um, and though these are responsibilities of the church, there's four of them, um, you shouldn't see them as burdens. Okay, they aren't burdens. 
Um, they are their benefits to us. I mean, have you guys ever felt like the church is a burden? It's safe here, you can tell me. I won't take it personally. <laughs> have you ever felt like the church is a burden? I mean, sometimes, guys, we feel like... There's a, there's a way we can feel in our relationship to church like this. Like, you're a lone juggler. Okay, so you're a juggler, you're alone, you're juggling different things. So you juggle your work, you juggle your marriage, kids, friends, neighbors, exercise, sports activities, whatever, and you're juggling these things, right? And, um, and church is just one of those things you juggle, right? It's one of the balls, it's one of the bowling pins, it's one of the chainsaws, perhaps, that you juggle, right? And so church is something that's external to you, it's something you go to, it's one of the balls you might just drop because you need to regain your sanity, like, ah, oh, things are kind of insane, I need to drop something, I'll drop this one, right? We can think of ourselves as a juggler, a juggler and um, church is something we juggle, and we'll drop it to regain our sanity. But the New Testament, guys, talks about us not as lone jugglers, but as organs in a body, right? It talks about us as organs, as parts of a body. So the church isn't something you, uh, is something you are, it's not something you go to, right? Church is something you are, it's not something you go to. The church is something that you're a part of, you're an organ and a body, not something external to you, right? The church is something that you draw life from and draws life from you. I'll put it this way. We talk about organs and bodies. Um, you're a kidney, okay? You just be a kidney today. You're a kidney. Best thing for a kidney, guys, the thing a kidney loves most, feels the most invigorated and alive, is when a kidney is in an abdomen, right? In an abdomen, connected to a renal artery. And that renal artery is bringing in like a fresh supply of nice, oxygen-rich blood, and that kidney's just happy, right? It's a happy kidney. And, and that, that oxygen-rich blood, right, comes from the heart and the lungs, and they give it to the kidney, and the kidney's refreshed by it. But what's really cool is that, is that the, the heart and the lungs get refreshed by the kidney too, right? So as that blood comes out of the kidney and goes through into the heart um, and into the lungs, it's refreshing the heart and lungs as it's filtering out like the urea and uric acid and creatinine. You never heard that in a sermon, right? I just feel like that, those words need to be said. Um, and as those are filtered out, that blood comes back and it's fresh and the heart loves it and the heart goes, okay, let's put some oxygen in this thing and you know, gives it back. That's what we're meant to be. We're meant to be organs in a body. That's what the church is, interdependent, giving life and refreshment to each other. So the church is not something that we need to break from or we need to you know, drop for a while when life gets busy or demanding. It's a community that we need all the more and we depend on all the more when life gets hard and, and we need fresh strength and fresh energy. And so we're going to look at these four practices and each of these four practices is a way that we give life to each other, that Christ gives life to each one of us through each other. And because I hear from people, you know, quite a bit that I'm talking to in, in our community, and I'll just talk to them about church and stuff, and they'll say, you know, I used to go and stuff, but I'm real busy, I'm real tired all the time, you know, I need some time. And so I take Sunday morning, I need, I need the rest. And I would just challenge them by asking them this, are you tired or are you weary? Those are different, okay? Tired is your body needs rest. So many sleep needs recreation, needs leisure, those kind of things, right? That's tired. Weary, guys, though, is a condition of the soul. And when the soul is weary, no amount of recreation or entertainment or sleep will fix it. I think we've all experienced that. I mean, I've been soul weary and I thought, okay, I just need to relax and you know, watch several movies in a row or something like that, you know, and just, like, I'm going to get rested and it doesn't rest me. Because I'm not really tired, I'm weary, Guys, we were created to worship God with our whole lives. 
So whether it's in your marriage or with your kids or anything at your work, you're, you are made to worship God by loving and serving other people anywhere you're at. And the fuel for Christians to do that is joy. The fuel to do that is joy in Christ. And if we're filled with joy in Christ, you know, we aren't weary. That's what, that's what solves the problem of weariness. So I would just ask this question when you feel that way. Are you tired or maybe what we really are is weary? Maybe what we really are is just out of fuel to love the people around us. And if that's the real issue, guys, that we're empty and joy in Christ, then we need each other all the more. We need the church. We need these four channels of grace that he has in here to fuel each other. I love the way Paul talked about the church. So Paul was talking to the Corinthians, and he said this about his role in the church. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Isn't that cool? If we thought about that with each other, that each one of us were workers with you for your joy, that transforms things. I mean, think about the, in the Old Testament, you know, there was the Sabbath time and what Jesus said about the Sabbath. He said that the Sabbath was not made, uh, that man was not made for the Sabbath. It's the same with the church. We weren't made to somehow drive some sort of machine. You know, the church is something that's to fuel our joy so that we can worship Christ better. The, 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 the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so if that's true, guys, we need to constantly assess what we do as we gather. Are we actually increasing each other's joy in Christ and helping each other? So you are not an organ. I mean, you are not a, a juggler, you're an organ. You're an organ in a body, you're not a juggler standing alone. And so let's look at the four practices that they fueled each other's joy with. And there, there are four of them. There's the word, fellowship, communion, and prayer. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see that in verse 42. Um, you might think, well, how can we do that now? We don't have apostles now. Um, we don't have apostles now because apostles had very specific criteria. One of them is that they saw the resurrected Christ. We don't have a lot of people like that available now. Um, so we don't have apostles, but how do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? And the really cool thing, guys, is that we actually have the apostles' teaching written in here. Isn't that awesome? We don't have the apostles here, but we have their teaching written here. And we have it in Gospels. You know, you have four Gospels. You got Acts, which is also a narrative history type thing. We got letters. And then we've got at the end, we got the Apocalypse. We got the Revelation um, at the end of the book. Um, and we have this amazing set of the apostles' teaching. And, um, and you might ask, well, why are these particular ones? These are the particular ones because these were actually written either by apostles or close associates of the apostles. We know they're the apostles' teachings because either apostles wrote them or close associates of the apostles. Um, which New Testament books were not written by apostles? Mark, okay, that surprised people, not, not an apostle. Who else? Luke was not an apostle. Who else? Yeah, Acts was written by Luke, so not an apostle. Yeah, who else? Jude, not an apostle. And that James that we have is actually Jesus' brother, James. It's his little brother. So Jude and James were written by Jesus' little brothers. They get included very close to the apostles, I think. We can include them. And then uh, Mark was a close associate of Peter's. We see that in Acts, traveling with him, writing down Peter's um, recollections of what happened with Jesus. Luke, close associate of Paul, writing down all the things that uh, Paul knew and also close associate of the other apostles. Um, and any book that's in the New Testament, guys, it had to be written in the first century because it had to be written in the first century so that it was an accurate representation of what the apostles taught, right? So we don't include books that were in the second and the third century because the apostles are dead and their close associates would be dead. 
Um, do you guys know how many books, how many books we have from the New Testament that claim to be written by apostles, but we have not included them in here? Do you know how many? Zero. Isn't that awesome? All the, the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, all those things were written in the, uh, the second or third century. So it's actually very easy to know which ones should be in here, which is super handy. Um, so amazingly, we have the apostles teaching here, and they, they teach us how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together to be one complete story of Jesus. And guys, these books still speak from God. They still speak. You guys know that when you read it alone. You, you know that God has spoken to you. How many times in here in this room, as somebody has preached from these books, you have felt God like he's gunning for you? Like he knew what you've been doing this week. Because of course he does. <laughs> and like he's gunning for your heart. Because of course he is. Right? He still speaks through these things. Through these, through these letters. And so what kind of devotion do those early believers have to the, to the apostles' teaching? Some people say, well, you know, in the early days they didn't really have preaching like this. They just kind of discussed the text more like a Bible study. And it was both. You know, they did some preaching. You know, we see... Um, Paul preaching really long sermons, one of them in Acts 20, a uh, guy dies, it was so long, um, in Acts 20 verse 7 it says on the first day of the week when we gathered and took uh, and broke bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day and then listen to how Luke describes it and he prolonged his speech until midnight and there were many lamps under the, in the upper room where it was gathered and there was a young man named Eutychus who was, he was sitting in a window and he sank into a deep sleep because Paul went on and on and he fell out and he dropped dead. And people were like, Paul, you really killed it tonight. You know? But they actually, uh, don't worry about him. They actually raised him from the dead and all that. You could do that when you had Paul around. But um, so they preached, you know, and they also discussed the Bible too. And so there's preaching. And the preaching was interactive to where the, the believers would read what the scriptures say and they would compare it to what Paul said. We see that in Acts 17. It says that the Bereans, that they received the word eagerly, but they also examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. You guys should be doing the same thing. You know? That's why you know, I'll mention, look at this verse, look at this passage, Like, let's discuss it. If you see something here that doesn't seem to be what it says, let's talk about it. You know? That's very biblical. Luke commended it. Um, the, being devoted to the word also is about discussion. So we get together, we discuss the word. We're going to do that this this Sunday, even at lunch, if you guys can join us, we've got these little sheets here with questions. We're going to meet over in the kind of Rubio's um, habit area and uh, discuss some of this stuff. Um, and then there was also offering of the word privately to each other, just words of encouragement, you know, giving a psalm, giving a bit of scripture to each other. So we're to be devoted to the word. Second, we're to be devoted to fellowship. Verse 42, it says they were devoted to fellowship. Um, this word fellowship has been super watered down. You know, fellowship potluck, you know, you go to the movies and you hang out with your Christian friend. You're like, dude, that was awesome fellowship, you know. And it's like a weird word that we even use, the Christian words. And non-Christians are like, why don't you just say you hung out? Like, why are you always using that word? The word is koinonia, and um, it, it can be translated fellowship, sharing, uh, having things in common, participation. And it's not so much activities you do, it's a relationship you have with other Christians. Um, in Luke 5, it talked about the fishing business that James and John and Peter had, and it said they had a koinonia, they had a partnership in business. And so it's a relationship um, where we actually share together uh, the profits and losses of our lives together. And the context shows some of that. Look at verse 44 of chapter 2 of Acts. It says, 
And they all believed, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily to their numbers those who were being saved. And so God infuses fresh grace into us as we devote ourselves to fellowship, to sharing. Part of that is sharing our presence. I think this is super hard for us to do. I mentioned it last week. It's super hard for us to share our physical presence. I mean, in our modern world with smartphones and stuff, we've gotten used to what some experts call a disembodied presence, which I know sounds really weird. But it's where you're present at that birthday party or you're present on their vacation or sometimes even their honeymoon, which is awkward. And uh, you're present in all these places with them in a disembodied way, right, through a device, And we've started to think of ourselves as being present with people when we're not present with them. The New Testament, though, guys, values over and over again, values embodied presence. You hear Paul saying all the time, like, he's writing scripture to them, and he says stuff like, hey, I really want to be with you. I'm going to try and make it over there. Things are hindering me. I want to be with you. I want to be present. And it's the same with us today. Just because we have these devices doesn't take away the need to be really physically present with each other. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was... um, martyred by the Nazis, he said that um, our physical presence to each other is the physical presence of Jesus to each other. Like that because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when we're together, we become that physical presence of Jesus. When somebody's in a hospital bed and a believer comes to him and brings the word of God, you're being that physical presence of Jesus there. When you visit somebody that's in prison, you're that physical presence there. When you're coming to encourage a believer, you're their physical presence there. They know they're loved by God because Jesus came in you, to them. And so we need to be embodied like that. And we need to open up our lives to each other, you know, um, discussing the things that God's doing in our lives, our struggles and stuff. I remember the first time this happened very vividly. So I didn't grow up in the church, um, became a Christian when I was about 13. When I was 16, I could start driving, so I started going to church. I went to Tasha's church, my wife, and uh, went there. And that church was a pretty formal church, you know. It was a, a reformed church. It was very formal. It wasn't really like a small group oriented. You didn't like talk about your stuff together, you know, you just go, you're a sermon, you leave, right? And um, it's cool. It's Dutch Reform, so in the old days, they would all hang out in front and smoke, which is cr- pretty crazy. Um, but they didn't do that anymore. Somebody put the, you know, shut that thing down. But um, there was no, like, sharing of your personal life. And so I had this friend, Dustin, and we were into reptiles. I know, this is getting creepy. So we were in my truck. We're headed out the desert. We're going to go look for reptiles. We're going to go look for desert iguanas. And he just starts talking to me about, like, what the Lord's doing in his life. And I, I remember this super vividly, and I've got a terrible memory, but I was driving along, and I'm just like, what's he doing? You know, he starts talking about the Bible and what's going on in his life and his struggles, and I'm like, dude, we're not at church. What are you doing? You know, it freaked me out. But we're to share our lives with each other. You know, that was a, a major eye-opener. That's how we're the church together. They talked in here about sharing meals. Sharing meals together is huge. Um, One of the big differences between Jesus and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, was that Jesus would eat with sinners. Um, And and that was a way back then of showing acceptance. If you would eat with them, it was accepting them. And so the Pharisees were like, they were very narrow. They were basically an elite dining club, right? So there were certain people they would eat with, and it was just kind of them and people on their level, and they wouldn't eat with others. And you say, how weird. But we do that today, too. You think about the cool kids table, you know, in high school, you remember that. There was an eating kind of pecking order thing. What about here? You know, who have you eaten with here? And how have you gotten to know? I mean, we have to eat anyways. We should eat together in a way to build koinonia, to build real sharing. 
They also, though, guys, shared their possessions. Okay? Like, uh uh-oh. Verse 44, it says, And they were all together, those who believed, and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. This freaks American Christians out big time. Right? Doesn't it freak you out? You're like, wait a minute, you're like, oh, okay, there's got to be a solution to this. Okay, they, they were poorer, and it was a different kind of culture, and, like, we have, like, five reasons why we don't do this, right? Like, let's just real quick. I love it when we do this, guys. I love it when the New Testament freaks us out, and we start coming up with lists of why that doesn't apply, you know? Because, guys, if we'd stop doing that, I think we'd discover real New Testament Christianity. I think the less we went, oh, wait, there's a solution to this. We don't have to apply this, right? Um, what is this? Is this, like, redistribution of wealth? What a horrible thing to say. You know what? It is. Okay? Is it communism? Well, it's not communism because they're giving it. They're not having it taken, right? What it is here, guys, is that from overflow of joy in Jesus and a profound trust that he will provide, they would share things. They saw needs in the body. They would take care of it. Um, And that's still needed. I don't know if you guys know, but half of all Americans would not be able to come up with $2,000 for an emergency, even with their family connections and friends and everything. Half Americans can come up with $2,000 that way if they made a bunch of phone calls. You're saying, that's me. Well, you're half Americans. Like, you prove my statistic. Um, half of Americans can't do this. Like, the church is designed, guys, by God to help each other in crisis. And you think, well, won't people take advantage of that? You know, this is our American thing. We're like, somebody's going to take advantage of this. And like, where are their bootstraps? They should be pulling those up, you know? Um, will they take advantage of it? Yes, they will. People will take advantage of it. And that's why God's provided in his wisdom a group of people that would help us do this. They're called deacons. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But God's provided a group of people there in Acts 6 that would help us to help people in the body in wisdom. So we're actually helping them, right? So we're not just handing things out, not helping people, that we're really rendering aid. And those are deacons. We'll talk about them in a couple of weeks when we talk about leaders in the church. But we could start small ways. And I know you guys are all open to this. So start there. You could start in small ways. I mean, um, some of you guys know I'm in the process of... Uh, Becoming a minimalist, okay, which sounds weird, but the whole idea is just, you know, not to own things you don't use, you know, get rid of things that, like, have really no purpose, the things you've held on to for years because you're going to need them someday, you know, the kayak and the snowshoes and that kind of stuff, right? You start there, and then you go through your clothes, and you're like, I don't really wear any of this stuff, so minimalism, and so I'm in my backyard, and I'm planting my minimalist plants because it goes that far, it's like all cactus, man. The whole backyard is just going to be cactus, stuff that with spikes on it, you know, stuff that needs no water. It's going to be awesome. But the thing is, we live in Canyon Hills, which is like just the four minutes from here, and the ground is super hard. I mean, there's no way. So I'm like, oh, oh, okay, this isn't going to work. You know, I got about the far end, made a little divot. I'm like, this isn't going to work. So I move over. You know, oh, this isn't going to work, you know. So there's like this whole line of like, I'm not, I'm like going to plant it anywhere. I don't care if it's the right spot. I'm just trying to find somewhere I can dig. Finally, I'm like, I need a jackhammer, okay? So I look into Home Depot. You can rent them and stuff. But it's going to be a fortune to rent this thing. I'm going to need this a bunch of times, right? So I'm like, all right, I'm a minimalist, but I'm going to buy a jackhammer. So I go on Amazon, and I find this jackhammer. And it wasn't very expensive, and it comes in the mail. And it's Amazon Prime, no shipping. It's 45 pounds. They'll send it to me in two days and not charge me shipping. I don't know how they made money on this thing. But anyway, so I got this jackhammer. Like, this is a very non-minimalist thing to own. Like, people should not own their own jackhammers. Um, but you know what? There's no need for any of you guys to own a jackhammer now. Let me know, okay? Like, we could share this. And I'm sure you guys have stuff that you could be sharing. I mean, it starts with simple stuff like that. Like, you guys probably all live on exactly the same kind of dirt. Let me know. The jackhammer is available. Um, 
But think about how we could share our lives more with meals and with our stuff and by sharing our lives together to have real koinonia. Third, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Look at verse 42. It says, but they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Um, What is Luke talking about here? Is he talking about meals or is he talking about communion? What's he talking about? It's hard to tell. He's probably talking about both because they commonly did both together. So they would have a meal and part of the meal they'd have communion. And um, we could do that too, by the way. We kind of do that now because we have communion and then we event- immediately got to go to lunch together. But we could close that gap if some of you guys wanted to somehow arrange this. We could do. We could do a meal here. I th- it's a cafeteria is what they use this for, I think, right? So we could, we could do a meal in here. We could take communion. We could do all that, which would be awesome. So let me know. But what is communion? Communion is a remembrance. We know that from Luke uh, 22. It says that as the, uh, when the hour came, Jesus was reclined at table and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus took a cup. And after he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, I will not um, drink of the fruit of the vine again until I do in the kingdom of God. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body that's been given for you. Do this and remember to me. And then he took the cup and said, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. What's going on here? Well, one of the things that communion is clearly is a remembrance. And it's a remembrance in the same way that the Jews had the Passover meal to remember that they were delivered from Egypt and delivered from bondage. Um, it's a meal like that where we look back to how God has delivered us from our sins and from slavery to sin through Jesus, who's the greater Passover lamb. So when we do it, we remember what he did. We remember his body, we remember his blood. But I think it's more than that, okay? Um, I think it's also there is a real presence here, too. When we take communion, there's a real presence of Jesus. And there's been a big debate for a very long time on this. How is Jesus present in communion? And there's a spectrum. On the one end, you've got Roman Catholic Church would teach that the, the, um, the bread and the cup become the actual body and blood of Jesus so much that it is only right to worship the elements. So you could worship the elements because they have actually become Jesus' body. That's one side. On the other side, you have like kind of the Baptist tradition and Zwingli, one of the reformers, which is that it's just a memorial. Jesus is no more present in communion than he's present anywhere else. You know, when you're reading the Bible by yourself or when we're singing together or praying together, he's equally present. He's not specially present in communion. But guys, I think here when we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, when he talks about communion, he says this, Paul does, the cup of blessing that we bless, and he says, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Guys, somehow, communion really is communion. Somehow, communion really is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. Not physically, because Jesus' physical body, I told you, it ascended. His body's in heaven. But by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is present in a unique way in communion. It really is a communion with Christ when we do it. It's different in the way that he communes with you when you're reading the word. Different in the way when, than when you're worshiping or when you're praying. It, communion is another way that he communes with them. It's a different way. It's an important way. And I think a lot of us, especially people like me, have not really thought that through. Because think about this, like, is there any huge loss if a believer did not take communion for weeks or months or years? Is there something that God imparts of his presence and his power through communion that you're not receiving 
if you don't receive communion? I think there is. They devoted themselves to this, guys. And so um, we need to devote ourselves to it, too, that God desires to empower us as we remember and commune with him um, through communion. Fourth, devoted, they devoted themselves to prayer. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the prayers. And um, this is not praying by yourself, which is important. This is praying together, right? This is all these things are, we devote as we gather together as a body. It's talking about that kind of prayer. And I love the context. It says right after that, it says that they devoted themselves to prayer. And then it says awe fell upon all of them. This was a time of tremendous miraculous activity of signs and wonders being done by the apostles. And I told you before, there aren't any apostles now. So it would be very easy to think that somehow we won't see any miraculous things, that God's not going to do those mighty works of power anymore. But guys, nothing in the scripture tells us to no longer expect him to work miraculously through healing or to somehow work in divine interventions that are shocking. God still does those. Okay, and you might say, well, there are less miracles now, though, aren't there? Yes, there are. I mean, there discernibly are. We read through Acts and we see that. You might ask yourself this question. Do there have to be less miracles now? And I would tell you this. We have no way of knowing because we don't ask for it. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I'm not expecting the exact same level, but we have no way of knowing because we don't pray for it. Guys, no matter where you are on the continuation on whether spiritual gifts continue or not, we can all agree, guys, that we would see more answered prayer if we prayed more seeking an answer. Right? We would see more answered prayer if we prayed more seeking an answer. So let's, let's really lean into praying for God to work among us, to save people among us, to heal among us, to do some intense transformation in marriages together, to, um, to break down sin burdens and, and, and slaveries to sin and things like that. Um, one thing we've done to try and kind of just take a step out in faith on this is by practicing James 5.14, it says this, if any one of you is sick, let him ask the elders of the church and let him pray over him and, and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Um, and it's really cool because the last year we've been doing that. So somebody's sick, somebody has an issue. Before I'd say, hey, I'll pray for you. And then maybe not, which is the worst. Or in the better situation, somebody asks for prayer and I pray for him right then. So then I know this is happening, okay? Um, but what we've been doing more recently last year is somebody's sick, let's gather a group of leaders together around them, and it says anoint them with oil, we don't dump a huge thing of oil on you or anything, it's just a little dot of oil, you know, it's just a, it's just a symbol of God's presence, not magic oil, and then pray for healing, and it's crazy how many people have been healed, not all, God doesn't always intend to heal people, it says of Paul, he says in 2 Timothy 4.20, he says, as he's writing at the end, he's giving all his greetings, he said, you know, I left Trophimus, who was ill, in Miletus, you know, it's like, Paul, why didn't you heal him before he left? Like, for whatever reason, God didn't intend for that to happen. God has something he's doing through when those things aren't answered. But guys, we need to pray. You know, we need to pray for answers. We would see more answered prayer if we prayed more for an answer. And so we want to pray for you guys. If you have things you want prayer for, whether it's um, sickness, physical uh, debilities of different kinds, or um, issues in your, in your family, or whatever it is, we want to pray for you. And so what we'll usually do is, after we kind of greeted people and talked to people afterwards, then hang around, we'll gather some leaders again, and we'll pray for you. Let's see what God does, and let's keep a record of it, and like see what he actually does. It's amazing. Um, and so what will happen is the same thing that happened here, is that we'll pray more, we'll keep an eye out for answered prayer, 
we're going to see answer prayer, and we're going to have more awe and gladness like they had. So these are the four practices, guys, and it's beautiful, and it's simple. It's awesome. And look at the results in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day those who are being saved. Do you see the results? You got joy, right? You got glad hearts. You got generous hearts. You got um, praise to God. You got favor with all the people. At least for a while, the community liked them. <laughs> a little bit later in chapter 6, things get really hairy. There was more drama. And it's not to say there wasn't drama in the church, okay? It's beautiful, it's simple, but there was drama about widows. There was drama with Anna and Sapphira dropping dead. There was drama with persecution. Like, there was difficulty inside and outside. But the design of the church is a beautiful, simple thing, guys. And then look, it says, and they added, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That as we experience joy in God in this body, we'll want to invite other people into it, and they'll want to be a part of it. Simple. Let's not make it complicated and make each other miserable. Anybody ever been a part of a church where made it complicated and made each other miserable? Like deviated from a very simple model because of, you know, some bizarre ambition or power trip or whatever. It's like just let's practice these four things together. That's God's plan for the church. That will stop us from doing the juggling and being organs together that are fueled by joy in Christ. And I want to end on one thing. And the one thing is this. The hardest thing about this, guys, the thing that is required for all these four that's the hardest thing for us to do is give ourselves to each other. That's what it really comes down to. It really comes down that we would actually devote ourselves to each other in this room, and it's hard to do. Our hearts don't want it. Culturally, we're taught to be individualistic. Um, we've got all kinds of strains and stuff like that. Um, what will free us from our self-absorption? And it'll be this. We'll be devoted to one another when we see how devoted Jesus is to us. We'll give ourselves to each other when we see how Jesus gave himself for us. We'll be devoted to the word, guys, when we see that the word is really about Jesus, the word, who became flesh. John says that Jesus is the words that become flesh. And that Jesus came because he saw how confused we were about God and what was really valuable. So he came and showed us what God's like. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels, that's what God's like. Don't have any view that like that's kind of the softer side of God or that's the, you know, the more publicly presentable side of God and that there's some other. Jesus is the embodiment of who God is. That's what God is like. He shows us what's really important when we see him. He's really important. Guys, we are right now in a process of losing everything. That's my happy thought for you guys today. We, and I realize that more and more the older I get, we are in a process of losing everything. Our health, our looks, our strength. You guys still look pretty good. But we are in a process of losing everything. And yet, guys, Jesus is everything. If somehow in this life, each one of us would find Jesus to be our everything, we'll lose nothing. So let's devote ourselves to the word together to see the treasures that we have in Christ. If we saw Christ more clearly, we'd be devoted to fellowship. In Jesus, God has shown us that he spared no expense to welcome us to his table, right? On the cross, we see God himself giving everything. Even this shirt off his back. You remember his tunic being, you know, sold. And he, he gave even the shirt off his back. Even the skin off his back he gave to welcome us into his home. Uh, Re Re Revelation 3.20 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And listen to this. And I will eat with him and he with me. What is that? It's mutual enjoyment. 
He enjoys eating with us, and we can enjoy eating with him. God, the God, has accepted us at his table as sons and daughters. Um, The gospel um, gives us the gift of himself, and so we'll devote ourselves to fellowship. We'll devote ourselves to prayer, guys, when we see that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was the perfect man of prayer, and he voluntarily allowed his prayers of deliverance to be denied. Didn't he? Remember him? You know, remember him saying that? If it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. And and Jesus volunteered to have his prayers denied in the garden so that we, with our very flawed prayers, will be heard eagerly by God. We'll devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, guys, when we see that this cup and this bread are actually hors d'oeuvres of the greater feast to come. So people say, like, it's a weird meal. It's small. Right? They're hors (laughs) d'oeuvres. These are hors d'oeuvres of a feast to come. Listen about the feast. This is good. You guys will like this. Isaiah 25, 6. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, I will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Okay? Like, you probably have a pretty lame view of heaven. Okay? (laughs) It's a feast. Okay? One of the many things it is, is it's a feast. It's a feast of rich foods and well-aged wine. And remember Jesus said that he's not going to drink wine again until he drinks it with us in the kingdom. And so this bread and this cup, guys, are a hors d'oeuvre of the real feast to come. And in closing, I want to just ask you guys, how do you feel? Sounds like Princess Bride, right? Remember the guy that was torturing him? He's like, I just took seven years of your life. How do you feel? No, how do you feel? You know, how do you feel after hearing that? Do you feel a little bit more joy? Do you feel a bit more peace? Do you feel a bit more rest of your soul? Do you feel less weary? Do you feel your sanity returning? Do you feel more ready to worship God here and out there? That's what our gathering's about. That's what we do for each other. That's what you do for me when we gather together. We're not lone jugglers. We're organs in a body. Let's be devoted to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us a family beyond our immediate family. You've given us an extended family of your kids that we get to do life with, that we get to um, receive your grace from, receive joy in you, to be stirred up to continue on the journey, Lord. Lord, we thank you. And we, I just want to say, I'm so sorry for even thinking of the church as a burden or a duty or something like that, Lord, when it's really your gift. And so we pray, Lord, help us to be more and more of a gift to each other. Now that we know that that's what we're to be, help us to do that. Help us to do life together, to serve each other, to make life richer and better for each other, which will result in praise and honor to you. Lord, we pray to you. Um, that as we do that, Lord, we pray we'd invite people in and that they would desire to be added day by day. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.